I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Well, I'm here today with Harper Reed, and we're at Soho House in Chicago. And Harper, you know, the last time we hung out was, was it was actually in Oslo. Do you remember? Yeah, I do remember. That was an interesting. That was an interesting trip. There was a funny story that happened, which is, um, I, I really like uh, Norwegian death metal, and so when I was talking <laughs> to some of the people that were bringing me out there, I was like, I really like Norwegian death metal, and they were like, Well, no one here likes death metal. It's all like it's just is a it's a very fringe thing, and there's not very many people that really like it. And then at like one of the speaker dinners, I think the speaker dinner. I was talking to the people at my table, and every one of them were in a, was in a death metal band. No way. Every single one of them. Every, as far as I could tell, everyone in Norway loves death metal. And I was like, this one person was trying to change the outcome. But no, everyone loves death metal. What is it about Norway and death metal? I don't really... I think it's cold. I don't know what it is. It's cold, <laughs> and it's dark all the time. I'm not really sure, but I do... But it was a funny... It was a funny thing. I guess not too I, many Tahitians like death metal. Well, I, well, my favorite thing in the world is when stereotypes are fulfilled. Where where you you talk to you know someone from Norway and they're like yeah, I really like death metal and you're just like oh that's what I would have thought, but you have no evidence that it's true and then they they they're like no it's true so I, I love that that's that's good but that was a that was a fun time that was a few years ago yeah it was good well I, I think about that time you you just sort of wrapped up uh, yeah. working with the the Obama re-election team yeah that was a uh, so that was maybe April 2013 or something like that or like around that time so I'd basically been maybe six months out of the campaign um, which meant I was still going through general withdrawal of of doing crazy things and um, I just started this company called Modest and um, still trying to figure out how to balance kind of my wants of travel and kind of hanging out to running a small company which I don't know if, if I have ever figured out the balance there, but it's... The, I remember you saying that the, the day it sort of wrapped up for you guys, everyone sort of went off to start companies and yeah. Eric Schmidt was there writing checks. And <laughs> yeah, it was a, so it's a very interesting thing. I mean, you, you have this very pure level of work, like everyone there is working a thousand percent you know they're just they're just it's it's absolutely the hardest work anyone has done and so you get to see you know what people are made of a little bit and and you know you don't survive that kind of experience unless you have some sort of drive and then you know people who are there who are investors you know they were just like wait a minute this is a team and it's not necessarily a team together but these are small groups of people who would be very successful running businesses and there's been a a fair number of businesses that have come out of these kind of campaigns and I and part of it is you know when you run a small business your one of your main liabilities is your co-founding team like the people yeah. that you're running this business with and um, in this context you've seen the ups and downs in a very concentrated kind of space so it's a little bit like auditioning co-founders and you get to just be like well yeah that you know that person was a total asshole but but this that this you know this amazing engineer over here she's really great and like there's and i think there's so, some, so it was almost like the fair child of the of the 2000s I mean, it, it really was and in a little bit it's like that hunger games or battle royale you know where it's just who will survive um and then the other way it's um you know you have people like eric there who people who are these amazing supporters of both the campaigns and politics but also 
of technology. And so, you know, there's a handful of companies that came that spun out, and many of them are still around today. That well, when, they, when they brought you in, uh, I mean, it was really part of a concerted push to, I guess, bring technology to this problem. Yeah, I think what it was is everyone saw in 2008 the technology like was, was budding. It was this beginning. It was this little tiny bit of technology that went a long way. Um, and they saw in 2012 that they were going to raise all this money and they knew technology was going to be very serious and very, they had to be committed. And so when you have, in 2008, nobody knew they had to be committed, but in 2012, they absolutely knew that this was going to be an issue. And so it wasn't so much that they brought or wanted to bring technology even, as much as they, they knew it was going to be one of the mixture of gases that they were going to be breathing. You know, and when you're when you're in that kind of situation where you don't quite know, you know, what the mix will be. You don't know if it's going to be a lot or if it's going to be a little, but you know it's going to be part of this this performance mixture. When you arrived, what was the problem you realized you had to solve? Well, so that's a that's a hard question to answer because there's there's segments of the campaign that were fascinating. So the first when I arrived, there's only about 40 people there, um, and on election day, I think we had two million volunteers. So we scaled pretty well to 2 million people but from 40 you know you glance around and it looks like cubicles and you just see a bunch of people and you don't really it wasn't really clear what was happening I had certainly had no idea um, <laughs> and the problems that were being solved immediately weren't also weren't very clear why we were solving them and part of that was I think my own fault of not uh, not getting the context soon enough and part of it was um, it's just a crazy place and so that was like the first segment then the second segment was a little bit figuring out what was happening and then um, mistakenly thinking that technology would be the savior and so it's this this thing where we've all like I hate printers I just hate printers and so there's this as in the ones that make books or the, or the machines that actually print pages <laughs> I, I probably <laughs> I probably ostensibly may hate book printers but I really hate the <laughs> machines the small machines that we have in you know in our houses that print paper I just think they're worthless I actually got rid of mine uh, about two years ago and I've never looked back like I don't need a printer I don't even I hate printers at work I hate printers in general I think they're a waste they're expensive they're, they sit there but there's an interesting thing. I came into the campaign and I hated printers and I saw these field offices and all these, um, this infrastructure that uses printers as like its base. And I was like, we can, we can replace all this. We can use technology and we can use smartphones and we can use iPads and cheap computers. And we can replace all this. We can have a paperless field office. And you can replace field office with any type of office. And, and I'm sure technologists have had a similar experience, which I, I can replace this paper or this, this old anarchistic process with something that's a little bit more modern, let's say. Um, there have been a number of corporate living hell IT yeah, projects yeah. that have begun no, with exactly, that very uh, exactly, but. One of the things that I noticed very quickly, well, not actually that quickly, it took about six months. Um, and six months of an 18-month project is a quite a chunk of time. Um, the first thing is, is that technology actually doesn't solve many of the problems it needed solved. Most, if not all, the problems were aggressive people problems. They were right. about training. They were about making sure people could do work. And then in, in, a, in a little bit, it was about accessibility. Um, and when, you're, when your audience that you're building stuff for is the entire United States, and when your volunteer base is 18-year-olds or 65-year-old women, which is many of our volunteers, you know, 50 to 65-year-old women, um, you know, 
iPads or technology is not necessarily the solution that works natively. Um, paper does actually. Right. And so it, it, it kind of it it really challenged me. It challenged like my some of my base thoughts on, you know, well, how do I how as a technologist, what is my how do I participate if my enemy paper is actually part of the solution yeah and, and you, I guess recognizing your own digital bias well exactly that's a really good point of, of thinking about it it really was this recognition of, of my digital bias and um, paper has some interesting properties it's pretty accessible in many ways it's available in many places you can just go down to the you know you can go down to like a Walgreens or whatever a drugstore and buy paper for a printer it's there um, you can use a pencil if the printer breaks you know, you can you can draw on it. You can interact with it. You can you can do all these various kind of different ways of interacting with it. But it also it also scales in in, in regards to um, all ages of people can use it and know it. All sorts of types of people have seen paper before and can and can, <laughs> can interact with it. And, it, and so, it's so it is a technology. It's a technology, but it's funny to talk about paper this way because usually when you think about accessibility you're thinking about technology and when I think about an iPad and I think about like my mother who's very technical she's 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 the person that really got me into technology um, she's very technical but iPads can be really annoying they run out of batteries yeah. like you can be very good at technology and still have your computer run out of batteries and you're you're in trouble and so it's like these various these properties of technology you know it requires power it requires training all these things that we forget about as the people who know it already it's funny because it also applies to brands and you know we were talking about this before that brands came to a lot of you guys and said how can we how can we do this ourselves so that was using technology so so that's actually but it was, funny. It was the human part right well, that, well that i mean the, the human part but i think the funny part about the brands coming was uh, i remember my first conversation right after right after the campaign i was talking to i don't was know it the remember. market director of volkswagen no no because i had a conversation with him after so he goes I'm just going to give these guys an open checkbook and they're going to yeah. rebuild it for me. And I was like, so, so there's, <laughs> good luck so, with that. <laughs> so what actually happened and is I was talking to this giant ad agency and they were doing some neat stuff and they were and, and we were having a really frank conversation about some of the stuff we did and some of the stuff that they were doing and, and I said, well, you know, actually we just copied you, like you, we just copied the ad agencies and, and they were just like, what do you mean? And I explained, well, we had all this technology and we just, you know, copied what you guys did and they were like well we've never done that and I, and I realized that it was we're in this interesting point where we were reading these kind of articles about innovation these articles about ad innovation and we were thinking this is what everyone is doing right but it was actually really, just aspirational but it was all aspirational so we took this accidentally aspirational well, was a purpose aspirational but we, th- we didn't know it was aspirational kind of uh, uh, you know Whole position, and we said this is where we're starting. Was this really in the kind of the data profiling? This is in the in the data work. This is in the A/B testing. This is in all of the stuff we did. We thought everyone was doing it. We thought, and if you would have asked me in October 2012, and you would have said, "Where did you learn how to do this?" I would have said, we, "What we are doing is we are bringing campaign campaigns up to the same speed as big advertisers." Right. And then I leave the campaign, and the advertisers are like, "How did you do that?" Yeah. I'm just like, "What do you mean? You taught us." You know, it was like it was like this weird, like that you know that horror mo- horror movie moment where they zoom in and pull back at the same time, and you're like, "Ah!" Like it was that weird <laughs> thing where where I was just like, "Oh shit!" Like nobody knew how to do this before. But it it was so that was interesting. That was a funny experience. But I think that you know what you were kind of alluding to is this idea that none of the tech mattered without the people. Yeah. You know, and this, this and is mo- most brands. I mean, they they don't have or 
they don't have any more the the kind of the field force to go out and, and, and talk to customers they don't and i don't think they should get it but they have customers that yeah. are their field force and you see some brands taking advantage of this and you see uh you know people taking advantage of forums and really taking advantage of social um in some ways positive in some ways negative um i actually think uh there's a handful of brands that have done a very good job of always being always having great evangelists but um you know what 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 was reinforced to us what you know whether we're talking about paper whether you're talking about um technology the only thing that actually mattered was the people and what i mean by that is technology doesn't actually solve any problems for you can't or you can't win an election with technology you win an election by making the people who are working on the campaign so if you were um, doing it now you don't think there's a particular technology or strategy that would give you an edge oh oh sure there are but you're only doing it to augment people work right you're only doing it to make the people work and i think the best way to look at it is like just number of hours like you can you are you can volunteer 60 hours a week if i can make that worth 100 hours now we're talking Yeah. Um and that's the simple that's the simple math you're trying to do. You're no longer trying to to make a paperless field office. You're no longer trying to automate, you know, all the stuff. You're just purely saying, how do I make this person that's working 40 hours worth 80? And if you can figure that out, then that's the force multiplier that will actually work. And then if that's what you're trying to solve for, then whatever tool it is, it doesn't matter. It could literally be buying pizza. you know this, this is likely to be a, a, a kind of a narrative that most organizations are going to have now that we have more automation potentially ai algorithms the kind of the amazon dystopian workforce of the future right well i think what it you know there's a couple things that 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 this leads into one is um a a a I'm trying to think the right way of saying it, but it's something that we saw in the Obama campaign when and we've tried to enforce this with modest with when I when we were when we were earlier in the company, but it's how do we take advantage of the fact that no one is an expert any longer? Hmm. Um in this way that you know, if I'm hiring a marketer, I don't have to hire the world's best marketer any longer. I can hire the world's best tool user and the tools will help guide us to the right direction because everything's quantified. So we can see if that worked. If it didn't work, we can tweak it. And so it's this constant evolution and iteration instead of so, what it used so what, to be. So what is the, what does a human have to do then in the loop? Well, I think the human is the two is like it's like the person who tends to the robots. It used to be that marketers had to be Babe Ruth. They had to point out and they had to hit a home run. And if you look at the famous logos, you know, you look at like the next logo or you look at the IBM logo. These are people who really pointed to the, you know, and they hit the home run. They they did this thing that that changed how people look at the brand. Or you look at uh This was the Dave, it, Dave the David Ogilvy. Right? Or you yeah, or you look at isn't it Stephen Levy who really invented brand advertising? You look at these people who invented brand advertising instead of product advertising and you know, talking about Whirlpool or talking about these giant brands. um and they really were saying we're going to do a lot of work ahead of time that's going to set the tone forever right now we don't have to do that like mike and i could create a new brand we could hire a bunch of very smart people who are experts in marketing but what that really means is experts in probably tooling around marketing um we could say here's our goal we want to sell this thing over and over again and then we could say go do your thing and they might make some assets they might change how the brand looks they might change how the brand talks they might find a tone that tone may work that may not work but because it's all quantified they're just kind of stumbling down this hill as tend they're, they're kind of tending to this garden of robots that allows the brand to 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 get to the end um and so actually what i think matters then almost more than marketing or brand is what is that conversion 
what is the thing you're trying to get your brand to do? And I think this is where it breaks down a lot, where people actually don't know. And I think it's funny because they think they know. And so a brand's selling something and they're like, yeah, we're, we're here to sell this widget. And you're like, okay, well, what is your, you know, what is your marketing doing? We talk about your marketing and it's like, okay, what are you actually doing with your marketing? And oftentimes it's not selling the widget. It's celebrating history or it's, it's talking about the future or it's talking about, you know, these people that are members of your team in some way. But it's never, the conversion is not usually linked directly to the marketing for many brands. I think it's kind of silly. Um, and so when you look at a campaign or you look at like what we tried to enable retailers to do, it was break through all that noise, um, have a lot of tooling that just works very uh, brutally, you know, it's it's like, did this work? It's very binary, yes or no. And you can have measurements. It's like, yeah, it worked 70% or it worked 60%. And then you can do a bunch of tests and you just sort them by the one that worked the most and that's the one you do right then. And then the next day you start over. And it's this constant, this, like I said, tending to this bunch of robots, this garden of robots, more so than it is, I'm going to hit a home run. And that's very challenging, I think. Uh, was it building a garden of robots in, in mobile commerce? Was that, was that sort of your so that's, vision was, with Modest? It was the start of robots. And this, the first thing is that you know mobile phones, especially in the West, in the US, and in many parts of Europe, are not used well for shopping. Right. They're just not. And it's, and it's a sad kind of reality that... Starbucks doesn't count, does it? <laughs> well, even Starbucks, like the Square S1 just came out today, and the only way that deal worked was if Square lost money on every transaction. Hmm. So that's you know, it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because people are, I think it's because retailers are afraid of their customers. In what way? If you look at e-commerce, if you just scroll back, like you go back to like the 90s or, the, or, you know, even younger than that, you know, you look back at where Sears came from. You have a Sears catalog and it has all these items. It's a price next to it and then it's an order form that looks remarkably like the order form for most e-commerce websites. Right. It's basically the same thing. So we've basically just digitized the Sears catalog. So you just digitize the Sears catalog, and in many cases, the interface is, you're just looking at almost a database view. There's no automation, there's no speed, there's no excitement. It's just like, a, like an ordered list of all your products. Um, and let's say I want one, so I'm gonna buy this really great T-shirt, and I click buy, and then, I, and then it's added to a cart, I haven't bought it yet. So then I go to the cart and I look at the cart and I still haven't bought it yet and I click checkout. And then I still haven't bought it yet, but I, I'm asked a bunch of questions like where do I live? Where's my billing address? What credit card do I want to use? What payment method do I want to use? Then maybe maybe at that point I have a, a confirmation. I want to click buy again. And so I click <laughs> checkout and then um, it, 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 it just goes again and again. And, and, and this is, in some cases, this could be, you know, you could enter your address three times or you could enter a credit card twice or, you know, you, you, then you have to enter, you have to use a credit account and like you still haven't actually purchased. And so it's all of these steps. When you look at these interfaces, when you look at these steps, the first thing I have in my mind is this idea of like, who hurt you? Somewhere in the past, someone hurt <laughs> these brands, and they hurt these these inter they, and they're, they're creating um, reactionary interfaces because someone entered the wrong address, so they make you verify the address. Right. Someone entered the you know they they didn't know what kind of credit card they had, even though you can detect it. So they make you they're choose. They're not optimized for a customer experience. They're optimized for a, a for fear. For fear. They're optimized <laughs> for making sure that the retailer yes. is never in a bad position. But the secret is right now, and this is the big secret that I don't know if anyone's talking about, is that actually 
people are pretty good at buying things on the internet right now. It's been 20 years of buying on the internet. It's not a lot of time. Um, buying on the internet is probably legal to drink in the United States. Like, you know, it's like a 21 years old or 22, 25 years old. And, and this means that we can change how it works. We no longer have to be so reactive, so fearful. We can say, we can say if, if Mike goes and hits buy, then he probably wants it. Yeah. Probably. Like, I would say that we can have a confidence level even. You could say 90% of the time, the person who clicks buy wants what they want. I'd even be, I'd even say 95% of the time. And especially when you look at youth, like they're not, these, these kids are growing up, and this is one of the main premises of why we made Modest. These kids are growing up with iTunes, with the Android Play Store, um, with the, the App Store on Apple. And everything there is, is one click. Yeah. You tap it and you get the thing. If you're in a game and you're like, look, I want this product, this, this, like, this digital thing, I click it and it comes to me. Um, I had this kind of transformative experience where I was at a 7-Eleven here in the U.S. and uh, I saw these two kids and they were like delib they're deliberating over deliberating over like uh, what to buy and I was just thought it was funny so I watched them and they were trying to buy an iTunes gift card and they had like 25 bucks in cash and they're trying to buy this iTunes gift card and I realized at that moment that they were trading fake money in for real money. They're trading in paper money from the U.S. into money that they can use in their world. It actually had meaning. And, uh, and, and, and this value. had this currency that they were trying to get. They were trading this money that didn't make any sense to them. They were like, what am I going to buy with this? It's this fake money their parents probably handed them. They're trading into something that actually is real, that has this meaning that they can interact with with their friends, that they can buy things that are really meaningful. And then I started to think down that path, like, what is, how do they use it? Well, it's the, the, the interfaces are all hyper-efficient. It's very easy. It's, it's, they, they enter the money into their phone, and then the next thing they know, they can buy it with one click, one tap. Um, but yet, buying groceries or buying a shirt or, or, or even things that are you know, very inexpensive, none of it is that smooth. And these kids are going to grow up. You know, they're probably, those, those same kids are probably 13 now, 14 now. They're going to graduate high school. They're going to go into college, and they're basically going to say, what the fuck happened? Like, how was it that it was so easy for me to have this world where the, my real money worked? I, I graduate, I leave my parents' house, I'm at college, and suddenly everything is terrible. Yeah. You know, you go to a store and, and it's all defensive. Use the internet to buy something, it's all defensive. Everything is about fear. It's about making sure you somehow don't make a mistake, even though we're all experts. And it's like, it's, it's, it's all about these like kid gloves or these padded walls. And so what we did at Modest is we kind of took off the gloves. We said, yeah. We, we took out the training wheels. We trust that you know how to buy things on the internet. And so it's. And in case you made a mistake, you actually had an undo function, which, well, that which was, I thought was really clever. Well, that was one of the main things is, is you're trying to follow intent. Hmm. And sometimes you make mistakes. Yeah. And I, I was looking at this from a technology standpoint. I found it really funny where you have, uh, you have really great technologists that are building really great things. My, one of my favorite apps is Instagram. I love Instagram. And Instagram is a very complex application. You upload a photo. Um, like for instance, we're here at Soho House, you're not supposed to take photos. Let's say I take a photo, post it on Instagram, and Soho House is like, hey, you should take your photo down. I, I hit delete, no big deal, like I'm sorry, I hit delete. Um, Instagram sends out, you know, they have all this code, it goes out to, you know, all these servers all over the world, it removes the photo from each of those servers, it, it all over the world, it goes to people's phones that have downloaded the photo, it removes the phone from the photos, like, or, or, or the photos from the phone, all this stuff happens, which is relatively complex, yet, if I go to a retailer and I buy something, I cannot return it. When that is just simply <laughs> saying, I don't want this, it's one row. 
There's none of this distribution network. There's none of this hard technology. It's a very simple problem at that point in time. And it can get more complex. I don't want to minimize what happens when it gets on a truck and all that. There's a certain point where it doesn't matter. But we found in our testing, um, if you make it so it's very easy, you have to make it so it's also very easy to undo it. And so we were like, fuck it, let's just make it so you can unbuy things. And it actually, um, it turned out that it actually created this this neat side effect of people felt like they were helping themselves, which we've seen over and over again in crowdsourcing and whatnot. It, it felt people felt like, oh yeah, I can just I can test it out. Yeah. You know, you can you can you can buy it and then you can wait an hour and be like, I do want that and you can keep it, or you can say oh, I don't want it and you can unbuy it. Um, and and what that meant is that's happening today in our bad interfaces, but they have to talk to a human. Yeah. And then it costs the company's money. And then yeah. cost the brand's money, and then and then maybe the human wasn't like good. Try, so it's, like, it's like trying to cancel your cable subscription. It's, well, it's like I mean I think it's funny that you have, in some cases, you have these amazing retailers who are the best retailers in the world, and we all love them. Yet you have to talk to a human to cancel something. Yeah, and it's not cancel something that just that was shipped. It's cancel something that hasn't been shipped. It's interesting because we're very much in a bubble um, in the United States because you know the iPhone came from here and yeah. and iTunes. But when you when you go across to China. Uh, they've got a totally different ecosystem, which has sort of been naturally born um, yeah. on these messaging. Well, it's, well, the the thing about the 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 thing about the ecosystem is there's some exciting partying going on behind us. But uh, <clears throat> the thing about China that I find it fascinating is everything is aggressively different in the apps than it is in the U.S. And what I mean by that is not so much that the that the the U.S. doesn't have the technology. Um, because that's usually what people think. They'll read an article about how China has some advanced technology, and and they think it's that it's not that that we don't have the same thing. But what it actually is is if you use WeChat in the U.S., you literally don't have the features that WeChat in China has. Right. And that's fascinating. They are like they are because we don't use it the same way. Are just saying you know you don't get these features. Well, why is that? Do you think that, that you know U.S. consumers aren't culturally? Um, I think it's evolved to to, to, I think to a, interact in that. Way? I think a lot of it has a, has to do with the same reason that in various you know like M-Pesa out of Africa has taken off and yeah. like which is a really cool digital currency. And it was it was a lack of alternatives. And, well, there's a lack of alternatives and there's no infrastructure. Yeah. And when you're talking about rolling out internet infrastructure for for a country like China. China, that's way different than rolling out an infrastructure for U.S. and the U.S. is kind of behind, and so you know we'll roll out broadband and people will just stop for a little while. And like mobile phones are not growing as fast in the U.S. as they are in other parts of the world because yeah. we have infrastructure. But people, you know, WeChat's we, we nuts. I mean, you, you could buy everything from travel insurance to wealth management. To, I mean, WeChat is uh, you know, that, I mean, and, there's, and there's multiple channels here. There's there's WeChat. There's I mean. Um, People think in channels Baidu, here, don't they? There's, there's, yeah. Well, I think it's, I think in channels because what happened um, was everyone started with one channel, right? The retail store, and then yeah. they added another one, which happened to be e-commerce, maybe, or a sales force. And, and I think it's a, it's a natural way to break things up. But what happened in China is the channels expanded like they did here, and they all shrunk back into one. And I think the same thing happened to India, you know, where but the channel became mobile. So instead of e-commerce, it was just all moved to mobile with like Flipkart moving 100% to mobile, all this stuff going to mobile. And that's, that's where it's, it's complicated because in the U.S. we have this idea that we are where innovation comes from. But when I look at where innovation is coming from in commerce, it's not the U.S. It's very much not the U.S. It's like Indonesia and Insta- 
Instagram, right? <coughs> it's like it's like you know whether it's um, you know South Africa and Mixit and how the things there, whether it's WeChat in China, like innovations are coming from places that are not necessarily um, as innovative for for the Silicon Valley crowd, right? Um, and it's but but they're, but they're innovative because of their context. They're innovative because of the context, and they're innovative because of probably population. Yeah. You know, you have way more. I mean, that's the best part. When you go to Shanghai or you go to a Tokyo, I always think of the reason that they're such beautiful cities <coughs> and such great cities is because they are they're they're like the long tail, the physical long tail. You know, you can you can wake up at three in the morning in Tokyo and you can think I would really like some Italian food and probably find really great Italian food. And then you can probably after that you can be like I'd love to go to a jazz club that only plays Beatles covers, and you could probably find <laughs> that as well because it's basically a physical manifestation of the long tail, like the internet. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just population. I think that's a side effect of population. And when you look at, in you know, Japan is very similar with Line and all the services Line has on it. You know, this is what happens with population. Whereas in the U.S., the populations are so broke up, and and the, and the infrastructure is too good. I think that these opportunities are not met whereas you know in, in a china they're just everyone just uses wechat you know or in uh, or like rakuten like there's there that stat of rakuten a few years ago that like 98 percent of all japanese people had a rakuten account <laughs> you know and it's just because you can do everything with it and it's like that's to think about that in the u.s is bonkers like what if 98 percent of all people in the u.s had an amazon account then all sorts of things would happen on amazon and and this this isn't just, I mean, like another, what is it? Is it Klarna? Is that the Swedish company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that does payment stuff? Well, the reason they were able to do such cool payment stuff is because they were tapped into the social security numbers of Sweden. You know, so it's like these things when you, when you have either well, well, aggressively progressive infrastructure or you have a lack of infrastructure, which I don't think the U.S. has either, um, I think you can do some really neat things with technology. And usually it's about the lack of opportunity. That, that brings that stuff, not so much the opportunity, and so it's, it's, it's that's a challenging idea. You, you've 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 sort of moved between these two worlds now of politics and retail. Uh, what, what's sort of keeping you awake at night next? What's what's the what's the big hmm. problem that you really are excited to think about? So I think it's I think it's security. That's the thing. I, I think that's the big issue that we have yet to figure out. It's because I mean you have people like the I think as a CEO of Cisco saying it's not if but when you are hacked. You have all the big hacks, all the big data breaches that are coming from retailers, um, and then you have things like all retail is based on money, like it's all about money. And if you don't trust the money system, we're all in a big problem. We all have a big issue. And then things like Bitcoin is very interesting, but if you look at Bitcoin, it's all liability of security. People get their Bitcoin stolen all the time because of lack of security. And and I think once again about you know. Like my parents, who once again are very technical, and it's, but you think about them: are they really ready to use Bitcoin? Is that really the future? I, I think I think no. I don't think that's the future. I think that's actually really terrible. Um, and the reason is because mostly it's it's about like security and process. And I I think that's the the next frontier that we have yet to solve. Um, and. And because of this, I've actually been watching a lot of like the dark markets where like drugs are sold um, because there's no rules, so there's no there's no like uh, consumer protection, so they have to fight for themselves. And so watching how do they do it, like what are they doing to emulate consumer protection? Um, and then you look at things like you know these new marketplaces that are popping up, whether it's Etsy or whether it's I mean even eBay for example, you know the the, the idea of rankings came after the fact, you know, and the, the and so it's like how are these 
how are how is this new commerce going to handle? How do, how do they do it on the dark web? Presumably, there's no kind of rankings. Thus far, no. I mean, I, I think there's a really big opportunity to create a broad, a broad ranking system that that crosses all of these marketplaces because it's it's um, it's dangerous for many people. And you know, and I've, I've never I've never bought anything on the dark web because I'm just like, how the fuck would I do that? Like, I wouldn't even know. Like, I and 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 I don't. I obviously um, don't need anything from there. But it's it's more so that it's just like I, the the getting started is hard. And I think that's what the future is going to look like. We're going to be so worried about what could happen. Like when someone takes, when someone is able to own your entire identity and like ruin your credit and all this stuff, um, you're going to be very scared to use things. And if you think about, you know, the future, uh, I mean, currently my house, you can, you can turn my temperature up in my house. You can, you know, watch a camera in, in, in my hallway and in my entryway and you can like, interact with my house in a way that's very interesting and so if I have bad security or bad passwords anyone could do this and the reality is most people have bad security and bad passwords <laughs> and so that's scary there was just a really great article about a guy who spent 12 hours a day on hacked webcams watching people and it's and it's like I'm sure that that article is about one person but how many other people are doing this every day watching hacked webcams and it's this is the world of which we are now living in, and I think the future, which we have yet to see, is going to be scarier. Um, and so security is one of the things that's on my mind quite a bit, and it's just because nobody knows. And if you think about how we do it in the U.S., um, Home Depot gets hacked, um, the banks take on most of the liability, and nothing happens to anyone. There's no blaming, no one gets in trouble, even though it's pure negligence that for why it was hacked. Um, almost, I mean, I, I would say criminal. and. That can't sustain. Right? We can't have, you know, a, 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 like some sort of situation where it's no, I, you know, I got hacked, so I just have to go get a whole new identity. You know, that's that's like, you can't just send you a new identity in the mail like the banks are sending debit cards. But that's kind of how we have chosen to attach to attack this. And so I think I think we have a lot of big changes that are going to come. And I think it's going to be we have to be careful um, because just from a marketing standpoint. If we're not careful, and what I mean by careful, if we're not taking care of our consumers, taking care of their data, being thoughtful about their data, and realizing that every number has a human on the other end of it, then the consumers are going to rise up and they're going to make a lot of rules that are going to make the marketers' lives way harder. Um, and I think that's the direction we're going, because I don't think the marketers care. Harper, yeah. it's great hanging out. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Good to see you, man. Yeah, Thanks for on the show. You yeah, thank you. Cheers, man. Bye. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.